Good evening. Welcome to the next to last uh, GVALS event for the semester. We have a smaller event next Friday, which is April 28th at 4 o'clock in the West Reading Room of the Library. And that's with our Fulbright Scholar in Residence, Dr. Cephas Tushima. He'll be speaking on living with a vision. And uh, that will be part of uh, his, his talk, will be part of the, um, uh, the in, ceremonies to induct students into Phi Alpha Theta, which is the National Honor Society in History. So we do invite you for that. But tonight, we have Dr. Anthony Bradley with us from the King's College. And I've asked my friend and colleague, Dr. Esther Meek, who has known Dr. Bradley for quite some time, if she will introduce him. So thank you, Esther. Well, I'm embarrassed to start by saying that Dr. Bradley has known me for 22 years, and he looks the same now as he did when I met him, only that's not true of me. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so Professor Anthony Bradley is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the King's College in New York City and a research fellow at the Acton Institute, which you should look into because they have money for students to attend. His writings on religious and cultural issues have been published in a variety of newspapers, including the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Detroit News, and World Magazine. Dr. Bradley is called upon by members of the media for comment on current issues and has appeared on Al Jazeera, C-SPAN, NPR, CNN, Headline News, Fox News, among others. He studies and writes on issues of criminal justice, reformed political economy, Abraham Kuyper, marriage and family, African-American studies, youth culture, and reformed theology. So you have some things to study to get ready to do. His books include, and this is in uh, uh, early to late, so, and, and um, there looks to be about one a year. So uh, 2010, Liberating Black Theology, uh, this is the one that intrigues me, Black and Tired. That's a book title. Um, the Politics, I'm sorry, The Political Economic Economy of Liberation, Keep Your Head Up, Aliens in the Promised Land, John Rawls and Christian Social Engagement, Black Scholars in White Space, and the last book, 2016, is Something Seems Strange. Professor Bradley holds a bachelor's degree in biological sciences from Clemson University, an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary, where I think he was in my house at one point, an MA in ethics and society from Fordham University, a PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary. He's currently studying for an MA in criminal justice at the John Jay School of Criminal Justice in New York. And I do have to say, on a personal note, that over these years, I have thanked God many times for Anthony Bradley because he was there at a very key point in my daughter's life when uh, her spirituality was about to go over the cliff. And uh, I have thought of him as this craggy little scrubby bush on the edge of the cliff that caught her as she went over. And, uh, so uh, the influence, the positive influence in Star's life includes her love of Jesus, and I'm eternally grateful to him. Last thing I'm going to say, little known fact, this guy can salsa. Let's welcome Dr. Anthony Bradley. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome.
there. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming. I, I really appreciate you guys being here. I, I understand because I'm a professor as well. This, this is late in the semester. You guys have a lot of things you could be doing tonight, like catching up on work you should have done two weeks ago. So I am really excited and thankful that you all uh, took time out to be uh, with, with me this evening. And thank you, uh, Professor Meek, for uh, that uh, introduction. I, it's good to be introduced by your friends. I'll just, I'll just say that. And so I, I really do appreciate opportunities to reconnect and, and to be back. Uh, together with people I've known for a long time. It's good to have people in your life like that. So thank you uh, for that introduction. Uh, tonight, I'm, I'm going to talk about the, the intersection of, of anxiety and depression and perfectionism and social media. Doesn't that sound like fun? Really awesome, right? Uh, and I, I like to do that only because I've sort of been speaking at several colleges around the country, and I'm seeing some trends and getting, getting a lot of feedback. And you all have an opportunity as a cohort of young adults to do something very differently in this country as Christians, uh, which is to really treat these platforms in a way that allows them to facilitate you being free. And I, I've, I've really uh, come to understand that that uh, as I've looked around at some of my own students, I, I really see and have been confused about why they're so stressed out and anxious. Especially those students who are coming from Christian homes and contexts where you wouldn't expect that to be the case. So I've had, I had a student once, and some of you may have heard this story, Walked, walked in my office and is, is standing in the door frame uh, of, my, of my office and his, uh, his bottom lip starts to quiver a little bit and he, he starts to cry and he asked me if, he asked me how, how, did, how did he know if he was being missional enough? And I was, I was really startled taken aback by the question that he would, you know, sort of try to sort out if he was doing enough for God uh, to the point that he actually had a breakdown, a nervous breakdown, right in front of me in my office that day. And this is a student who comes from a great Christian home. His parents were in ministry, very hard uh, working, and they're was something about Christian culture that added some additional stresses onto him that began to unravel his sense of mental health. And this is something that the church has done to young people. And as I began to ask around, I've noticed this more and more that a lot of Christians who were coming out of the church, coming out of campus ministries, coming out of Christian colleges, feel a pressure to be something extraordinary that the scriptures don't say you have to be. And, and at least for some of our students at the King's College in New York City, they're so obsessed with their grades because they're afraid of being ordinary people. 
They have to be extraordinary sorts of Christians. And what's so bizarre, by definition, is that Christian campuses ought to have students that are the least stressed out of any cohort of students in the country. But actually, in fact, the levels of anxiety and depression that we find on Christian campuses is about the same as we find in, in other campuses. Let me, I'm just going to throw out a lot of data at you guys, and then we're going to have some conversation. So I hope that you have some questions for me as we, as we talk about uh, some of these issues. So feel free to uh, object and ask some, some questions when I'm, when I'm done here. According to a study of more than 100,000 students by Penn Center for Collegiate Mental Health, uh, more than half of the students visiting campus health clinics listed anxiety as a concern. That finding was born by the American College Health Association 2005 National College Health Assessment Survey, which reported that nearly one in six college students, that's 15.8% for those of you who don't do math, had been diagnosed or treated for anxiety. That same survey found that 21.9% of, of anxiety of students who reported anxiety said that it had affected their academic performance, defined as receiving a lower grade on an exam or an important project, or receiving an incomplete or dropping a course. That's up from 18.2% in the 2008 survey. In fact, the 2014-2015 survey by the Association of University and College Counseling Center Directors found that 73.1% of counseling centers, uh, counseling center directors reported an increase in the severity of student mental health concerns and related behavior on their campuses. Quote, the demand for service has absolutely increased and that's a national trend, says Carrie Landa, director of behavioral science. As students are not only coming to school, with pre-existing mental health issues, but with additional stressors and anxieties about performance and fitting in socially. It turns out that the, the uh, two things that are causing the most anxiety on our campuses that lead to, by the way, depression and self-medication are grades and stress about social life. Uh, and oddly enough, according to the data, uh, Instagram and Snapchat makes that anxiety even worse thanks to the fear of missing out, also known as FOMO. What they all have in common is that they are all make us feel inadequate because we do not measure up. When your Snapchat story is boring and your friend's Snapchat story is exciting and fun and hilarious, you look at your account and think, I'm a loser. 
or when you look at the Instagram pages of people that you don't know, you look at their bodies and their clothes and their vacations and their families, and you look at your own self and your own body and your own clothes and your own family, and you think you're inadequate. So what happens is that we are much more likely to compare ourselves with other people and see ourselves as inadequate because of the images that we receive in our minds on the platforms that we actually use. Now, what's so interesting, of course, is that even though students are already fully immersed in the, in the inadequacy of seeing themselves not as presented as other people on social media, we add on top of that in Christian subculture encouragement to be super-Christians, sinless Christians, unbroken Christians. So you have to have good grades. Uh, you have to have, uh, you have to be good. You have to be really smart. You have to have our relationship with people, but you, you can't ever touch them because that's sinful. Um, you can't spend any time with people that you're not already like. Uh, you have to do something really special for God in terms of your career. Uh, your family has these expectations on you to do something amazing because they work so hard, and so you have all these extra pressures to do these things for the church and for Christ. And so in addition to all, all of these things, uh, uh, there is this added pressure to do all of these things for the Lord, which increases the level of, of anxiety and depression and self-medication. And what's happened in, in our, our culture, of course, unfortunately, is that the definition of what it means to be at risk has changed. Uh, there used to be the understanding that what it meant to be at risk is someone who grew up in a poor neighborhood uh, who was around a lot of drugs and violence. By the time we get to the mid-2000s, that definition of what it means to be at risk has broadened and expanded. And I can tell you, because you guys are college students who will one day have jobs, hopefully, that you will be the future parents of at-risk kids. Here's why. According to psychologist Madeline Levine from the book The Price of Privilege, America's newly identified at-risk youth are preteens and teens from affluent, well-educated families with incomes of $120,000 or more. That's two high school teachers. That's what that is. Their kids are now at risk. Those are at-risk kids. Here's why. In spite of their economic and social advantages, they experience the highest rates of depression and substance abuse and anxiety disorders and somatic complaints and unhappiness of any group of children in this country. So you are, think about this, right? You are much less likely to struggle from depression, anxiety, and substance abuse if you grow up in the hood. You're much more likely to, to suffer from 
uh, substance abuse and depression and anxiety if you grow up in the home of two school teachers. Uh, students from suburban areas, these sorts of contexts, have higher rates of cigarette use, alcohol use, marijuana use, hard drugs than inner city kids. So it's interesting, right? <laughs> you think about the church space, we need to go in the city and help all these little city kids. I'm like, no, 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 dog. We need to go in the suburbs and help out all those people living in those nice houses with the grass and stuff and the, the fountains and the, the sprinklers and stuff because their kids are, like, losing it in there. Right. Uh, suburban students also report uh, significantly higher levels of anxiety and, and depression than uh, inner-city youth. And, of course, and this has been uh, something that's, that the, the researchers have really been surprised by, much more likely to self-medicate. That makes sense because if you have resources to buy things to self-medicate, you're going to use those things to self-medicate. So they're much more likely to self-medicate their anxiety and depression uh, than, than inner-city uh, uh, youth. Boys tend, by the way, uh, tend to, to use substances to self-medicate uh, in uh, these, these suburban contexts. So a lot of drugs and, and, and alcohol uh, are that way. Uh, uh, girls often deal with anxiety and these issues by spiraling down into depression a lot more than, than guys uh, uh, tend to do. So... Unfortunately, what happens is that some of our social media platforms, particularly Snapchat, tends to exacerbate already existing anxiety and depression uh, uh, issues. And particularly, the fear of missing out, also known as FOMO. I was talking with my students. Uh, there used to be YOLO, but that's kind of lame now. Now it's all about FOMO. So. Uh, uh, the, 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 the fear of missing out is defined as this. It's, it's defined as the uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out, that your peers are doing something, that they're in the know about something, or in possession of more or something, of, of, they're, they're, they're in possession of something better than you have. So you have this uneasy restlessness about the fact that other people, your friends, are doing things and thinking things and participating in things and knowing things that you don't know and think and do. And there are a few platforms that take advantage of this. I'll talk about that in just, in just a moment. But there is this sense, and this is what the data uh, says, that, those, that the, the fear of missing out which is one of the reasons, by the way, why we're constantly checking our phones for text messages. We're constantly checking to see if people are doing something, saying something uh, that we ought to be in, in the know about, uh, tends to uh, exacerbate and, and arouse four main problems that we tend to suffer from. Uh, the first is feelings of inadequacy. So this sense that my life is not complete as is, and so I'm looking for something to give me adequacy because I, I believe that there's something lacking in, in my life. 
So you're on the search for that. Uh, irritability, uh, which often uh, has more to do with lacking patience, uh, having really short-term expectations of, of things going well when they don't. You have sort of a negative affect in terms of those things. Uh, social anxiety, whereby you perceive yourself to be lonely and disconnected, and in fact, you may not be. You, you, you interpret your experience because no one has invited you to anything over the weekend, that you're somehow losing out. Uh, there, you don't really fit in. You don't really have any friends. There's a, a number of, of students who probably, in their first semester here, consider transferring because they didn't feel like they had good friends. Uh, fourth is self-esteem, this idea that this sort of, the, the idea of sort of self-perception and having a low self-esteem. That the fear of missing out tends to press at some of those, those issues and it arouses us in such a way that draws us back to those platforms for validation and affirmation. What the research tends to uh, demonstrate is that those who have low GPAs tend to not use those platforms as much. Whereas those who have high GPAs are much more likely to check, be checking in on what other people are doing. High GPA, because those people are often competing against those other people and make sure that their internship is just as awesome, their vacations are just as awesome, their spring breaks are just awesome. So, so those who are, are much more driven in terms of their own academic uh, interests are much more likely to constantly be checking uh, Instagram and Snapchat to make sure that they're measuring up. People that have low cheap, like, I don't care. That was me and Cosmo first semester, right? Please. Right. The research also indicates that, that being alone is the context in which we're most likely uh, to be captivated by swiping our phones on, on social media. Uh, there is also this fear of missing out uh, tends to exacerbate uh, substance abuse. So when, when students believe that their social anxiety, their, their social rejection, their social isolation, they're, they're being on the perimeter of, of what it means to sort of fit in and be connected, uh, when that's facilitated, when, when alcohol becomes the social lubricant by which you become connected, what the research shows is that the fear of missing out tends to increase the amount of alcohol that students consume. Uh, so as to be included in those snap stories and to be included uh, into uh, the images of what it means to be a part of a group of people in that shot. So they drink more than they would have otherwise uh, uh, because of that. Uh, there's, there's something called uh, brain hacking that I've just uh, discovered. There's a man by the name of Tristan uh, Harris who was a designer at Google. He now runs a company called Time Well Spent. So he left the app design world for the purpose of becoming a design ethicist, which was a position that he also held at, at Google. 
because he is exposing the fact that app designers on purpose are, are hacking our brains on purpose, right? As, as one of my, as one of my app, uh, app, app development friends told me years ago, he said, listen, if the platform is free, you are the product, right? So if it's free, somebody's paying to get access to everything you're clicking. So if it's a free platform, you actually are the product and you don't even realize that. You're being, you're, you're, you're being used uh, for other ends. So Tristan Harris and, and those who are coming out of the app world to sort of focus on ethics uh, really have, have focused on, on brain hacking. And there's a great clip of him talking about this on, on, 60, on, on 60 Minutes. This is, this is what Tristan Harris says. Uh, Every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get. This is one way to hijack people's minds and create a habit, to form a habit. What you do is, is, is sorry, uh, what you do is you make it work so that when someone pulls a lever, sometimes they get a reward, an exciting reward. And it turns out that this design technique can be embedded inside of all these products. There's a whole playbook of techniques, he says, that gets us used to using the product as long as possible. So Snapchat's most popular messaging service for teenagers is called Streaks, which shows the number of days in a row that you sent a message back and forth to someone. So now you could say, well, what's the big deal here? He says, well, the problem is that kids feel like, well, now I don't want to lose my streak. But it turns out that kids actually, when they go on vacation, are so stressed out about not losing their streak that they actually give their password to their friends to, to communicate on their behalf so they can keep their streaks up. And so you could ask when these features are being designed, are they designed to, 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 the, to, to help people live their lives, uh, or are they being designed because they are best at hooking people into using the product? So when you think about that lever that keeps us coming back, the, the same uh, uh, a chemical release from gambling that we receive in the pituitary gland uh, at a casino that I'm sure many of you have been to for spring break. Uh, the, the, the same chemical mechanism works when we receive likes. And so we actually want to see that we get liked because it releases this, uh, 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 a bit of an endorphin rush when we experience that. Now, I've always been someone who says that the, the social media platforms aren't the problem. It's not that these platforms are evil. It's not that these platforms have uh, some sort of, of sadistic um, uh, plan to ruin our lives and take us over. 
it's that we actually have lost our capacity to exercise resilience because we're already stressed out and anxious and depressed about our performance, about measuring up, about being super, uh, uh, super and extraordinary kinds of people. And what I've seen is that Christian culture actually can make this worse. There are three things that I've seen over the last uh, several years that even within a Christian uh, a subculture tends to set students up for the anxiety and depression uh, that tends to be facilitated by the fear of missing out that's facilitated by platforms uh, like Instagram and Snapchat. And these, and these are the three things. Uh, the first is achievement pressure. Uh, the second is isolation from parents. That's, that is being emotionally disconnected, spiritually disconnected, uh, psychologically disconnected, spiritually disconnected from, from parents. And then thirdly is touch deprivation. We are in a society right now, particularly if you're in the States, where most of you are actually touch deprived and you don't know it. There's a, there's, there is an epidemic of sensory deprivation. I'll, I'll, I'll explain that to you in terms of what that looks like. So that when, when you combine achievement pressure, isolation from parents, and, and sensory and touch deprivation, it's sort of the poison cocktail that sets people up for the types of anxiety and depression that's facilitated by platforms like Instagram and, and Snapchat. Over the 20 years that I've been working with uh, teens and college students and young adults, I've never, ever, ever, never, ever, 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 had a student say this, yeah, when I was in high school, my dad just hugged us way too much. And my dad, I mean, it was so annoying. He would take us out to dessert once a week and just sit there and listen to us talk. And he would ask us questions about how our weeks went. And he would ask how we were doing. He would just sit there and listen and listen and listen and listen. And there was no shame. So if I messed up, it was okay. And he would just hug us and kiss us and buy us more ice cream. And it was really annoying. I've never had, ever, 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 ever had a student, ever, ever, high school, youth group, nothing, had anybody ever say anything like that. And unfortunately, even within the context of a church, there is this pressure to be successful professionally. And the way the equation works, and I, I, I often, I almost, got, I almost got thrown out of a Christian school because I, I said this uh, to some parents at a, at a National Honor Society meeting. This one dad almost punched me. Uh, and I was, I would have been okay with it because I, I have anger issues. So I was like, come on, let's go. Um, but this is, this is, this is how the narrative, this is how the narrative works. And, and this will sound familiar to some of you. You have to get good grades in high school, right? Uh, in order to go to, to a good college, 
like Geneva or Clemson, who won the national championship. Okay. Against Penn State. I'm sorry, against uh, Ohio State twice. Um, uh, what was that score? Anyway, uh, so, so, so you have to get good grades uh, to go to a good school, to get a good job, uh, to get married so that you can live a nice, comfortable life, have kids, and then you just rinse and repeat. And, and, and by the way, this is, this is God blessing you. This is what it means to be sort of a godly person. So, so, the, so, so godliness tracks this, this American dream narrative of good grades, school, career, marriage, house, kids, soccer, football, rinse and repeat. And so what if you want to major in, in like, literature? What, what, if, what, if, what if you don't know what you want? What, 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 if, what if you want to have a job that doesn't pay a lot of money? Right? What, what if your definition of success is just making it through the week because you're so depressed? Right? Maybe, maybe success for you is, is just simply controlling your passions. But we've added this layer on to the definition of success that has done nothing but make the lives of students worse. So because of that, because that's a narrative, right, and some of you will be the parents of, you know, you'll have like, you know, eight to 12 kids each. And so, and so you'll, you'll be thinking, how do we make them successful people? And we often professionalize that definition. And so we coddle them, we pressure them, we micromanage their days, and we inadvertently deprive them of opportunities to develop on the inside. So what happens as a consequence in affluent homes, 22% uh, of adolescent girls in affluent homes are clinically depressed. These are homes of $125,000 or more that have everything they need, but they're still clinically depressed. Uh, boys abuse drugs, alcohol, girls medicate through their pressure, as I mentioned earlier. Our private school kids are two to five times worse off in terms of the performance pressure than public school kids. Uh, 30 to 40 percent of 12 to 18-year-olds from affluent homes experience major psychological problems. And what happens is that, that teens do not grow out of their self-medications and they're much less likely to get, to get help. And so this idea, this, this uh, pressure uh, for, for success has really made perfectionism a major problem. And you have to be, you have to have the, you can't have, I'll say it this way, you have to have the perfect job, not just a job, but it has to be the perfect job that, that meets all of your interests, meets your desires, that checks all the boxes, that pays you really well, or you don't have a job at all. So perfectionism wants you to have the perfect thing, or you don't do it at all. 
So here is here here are some of the ways in which that that has 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 worked out. Uh, children from affluent homes have much more perfectionistic sorts of problems, which are related to uh, depression and and anxiety and substance abuse, than students uh, who are from lower income uh, communities. Uh, perfectionism can be described as a belief that making mistakes is unacceptable. Whether it is uh, done, sorry, and has to be done in a context where there are no, no errors. Uh, people who are perfectionists often believe that making mistakes makes them less successful, uh, less likable, and even less worthy people. Our perfectionists are often compelled to work harder and harder to reach perfection. Assuming that you're human, it is impossible, of course, to be uh, perfect, but the expectation that you should be perfect creates frustration. And so what I've seen in my own students is that if, is that if they can't get an A, they just don't do it at all. If, it, if, if they can't have a perfect paper to turn in, they don't write the paper at all. So most, I shouldn't say most, a lot of procrastinators are actually perfectionists. Perfectionism, according to the data, is one of the major causes of, of procrastination. Uh, if you fear you cannot do a task perfectly, you may avoid it altogether. It's often easier and less painful to avoid a task, even with all the negative consequences that go along with that, than to admit that the perfectionist expectations are impossible to achieve. So you procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate, right? You've liked this girl for four years. And you won't ask her out because you fear the rejection. I know that laugh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Perfectionists also tend to be their self, their worst self-critics. So low self-image is often a consequence of perfectionism. Perfectionists frequently tell themselves that they're not trying hard enough, they're not doing well enough, that they're not good enough as, as people to achieve their own goals and accomplishments. Also related to perfectionism is the onset of more anxiety and depression. Uh, severe perfectionism can leave people feeling anxious or depressed simply because they haven't accomplished things. They aren't satisfied with their work. They aren't receiving the reward for their hard work. And underlying the hard uh, driving style, some perfectionism is, is the uncertainty or the fear of the future, not knowing what the future will hold, not knowing that they can be good at something, not, not knowing that they will, be, they will perform at a very high level at something in the future, actually encourages people not to try at all. So this is what happens within the context of, of high anxiety uh, about performance, is that you only pursue things that you know you can do you're much less likely to take a risk 
and to pursue something new or different or outside of, of the box. So this is often encouraged in context, and do, do not do this when your parents. Uh, your child brings home five A's, and they get one B, and they ask you what happened. That's how the perfectionism starts, because you are a failure somehow because you didn't get all A's. You got five A's and one B, and something's wrong. You have to offer some sort of apologetic uh, for that. When, when the goal of education is performance for a job and not the love of learning, it, it fosters and facilitates perfectionism. As I said to one of the classes today, if you look at the first six chapters of Daniel, uh, Daniel and his friends learned the language and literature of Babylon so that God could use them to do whatever God was going to use them to do, which, by the way, would be the equivalent of learning literature and philosophy. And what can you do with that? What kind of job can you do with that? Right? Well, whatever the job is that you're going to do. That's how I tell students to, to answer the question. Your philosophy major. Okay, well, what are you going to do with that? Work. <laughs> I got rent to pay. I'm going to get a job. What are you going to do with your major? Engineer. Right? So when education becomes not an end in itself, but a means, right? When it becomes a means of achieving things for the purpose of living a nice, comfortable life, it creates more context for the anxiety and the perfectionism when you can't predict that that will happen if you pursue, excuse me, if you pursue a certain uh, vocations. The other... Uh, this, this other uh, variable is isolation from parents. Now, studies show that affluent students are less close to their parents than children who live in poverty. And by close, I don't mean physically close, I mean emotionally close, where there's real connection. Now, parents can be over-involved in controlling at the same time, and their kids still feel isolated micromanaging so it's 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 the right the minivan carousel around around the city for for soccer and hockey and gymnastics and ballet and church and grand it's just this is this right in and out in and out doors closing doors opening closing hopping you hop out that's all that is and and while that's happening you're not actually connecting with your children where parents are simply chauffeurs. And unfortunately, there is the confusion that, that being physically present is the same as connection, and the data, of course, indicates that's not true. Uh, students who live in upper-middle-class families uh, tend to be at home alone without their parents more often uh, than students who are from lower-income uh, communities. Suburban children's needs for emotional closeness may often suffer as the demands of professional parent careers erode relaxed family time. 
and youngsters are shuttled off between uh, 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 school events and connecting is not actually happening. So to medicate the feeling of isolation, lots of students turn, of course, to things like drugs and alcohol and food and, and being at the gym right, as a way to medicate the isolation that they have uh, with their um, parents. So what we tend to find in terms of the data is that if you are from a, a lower income community, you're much more likely to have a better relationship with your parents than uh, uh, middle class families or uh, higher in terms of, in terms of, of, of income. But lastly here, I'd like to talk about the, the influence of touch deprivation our society is, is suffering from chronic uh, touch deprivation to make matters worse. Uh, one of the things that we've done in our culture is sexualized touch. So guys have to say no homo, right, in order to like, hey, no homo. So, so what we've done is that we have, we have so sexualized touch that in the States, American parents touch their, they've done studies on this, I've read, I've read them. Um, uh, American parents touch their children less than parents in other cultures. And touch deprivation is associated with things like this. Uh, positive body image. You are, you are I'll, I'll, I, I don't want to overstate it, so I'll use the word tend, just to be sort of academically... Uh, safe. You will not tend to find ever, I'll say that, you will not tend to find ever a woman who has, who has uh, issues with her body, who comes from a family that was very physically affectionate, particularly with her and her father. You will not find that. There's something about the validation from a father's touch to daughters that gives them the sense that their bodies are okay. So you're much more likely to find women with body, body image issues who did not have close physical intimate relationships of affection and warmth and affirmation and validation from their dads. Uh, anxiety is also associated with touch deprivation, uh, as is depression, uh, as is uh, aggression. Uh, I've done, I've, I'm doing some research right now on the role of massage therapy as an intervention for juvenile delinquency, particularly uh, in, in the area of juvenile violence. Uh, they've done a number of studies that have indicated that if you simply give aggressive and violent teens a 20-minute back massage for five days, their aggression levels plummet, they become more empathetic, they're more cooperative with adults, and are less likely to get in trouble. Imagine that, just 20 minutes, five days in a row. Just a back massage, like on a chair. You see at the airport with the faces in the thing, and they're kind of like, 20 minutes of that changes their, their uh, uh, disposition. I've seen uh, another study 
they took a group of, of violent teens and compared them with a group of, of violent teens. One, one group did um, relaxation videos where they watched like trees and waterfalls and you know that stuff, right? And the other group got, got massages, just back massages. Okay. Over a two-week period, same, same thing. Their aggression levels plummeted. Their anxiety levels plummeted. Their depression levels plummeted. They became more cooperative with their parents and adults and, and started to perform better. They've done, they've done studies, of course, in Sweden. <laughs> I, I read uh, another study where they had um, uh, uh, four, four and five-year-olds, and they gave them five to ten-minute little back massages every day for six months. And they noticed that when they did that, guess what disappeared? Bullying. Kids hitting each other, gone. Kids talking back to adults, gone. Six months of this. To make it even better, they did a follow-up study a year later after the massage intervention ended, and the kids were even better, even more cooperative, because sensory deprivation uh, wires your brain a certain way, so sensory intervention rewires neural pathways. Uh, touch deprivation is also associated with academic performance. Uh, we've seen this uh, particularly with uh, our high school, sorry, with um, uh, K to 12 students. Uh, students who are much more physically affectionate with their parents have higher, higher academic performance and grades, things like that. Uh, stress levels also decrease uh, in context uh, of, of, of a lot of touch and family context. Impulsiveness. Uh, the, the research that I've seen, especially with guys, is that when guys have experienced touch deprivation, they're much more impulsive and much more willing to do physically dangerous things in order to feel a sensory experience. So they're much more likely to like climb the building and jump off just because they're bored, right? Much more likely to do that. We've also seen, and this is an interesting correlation, right? So, so check this out, listen, check this out. So as, as families have become less, I'll say it this way, as, as there's been less touch in families, right? So touch has gone down in families. Hookup culture has, has, has has increased at younger and younger ages. So, so the touch deprivation is so bad, there's just such a need for that, that people are willing to open themselves up to hooking up with people for the purpose of being physically, right, affirmed that your body matters, that, you, that you're present, things like that. So that level of impulsiveness from touch deprivation, uh, we've, we've seen this as a, as a problem as, as well. It's also connected to low job performance, uh, poor relational skills, and so on. A series of studies uh, that were done compared the ways that Americans touch each other versus uh, uh, other cultures. One a researcher by the name of Sidney Girard, who studied the conversations between friends, 
in different parts of the world as they sat in, in cafes together. We call them coffee shops. Uh, he, he, he observed these conversations for, for the same amount of time in each of, of, of these different countries. This is what he found. Uh, in England, that place that we have a wanderlust for as Americans, in England, uh, two friends uh, touched each other zero times over about a two-hour period. Uh, in the United States, in bursts of, of enthusiasm, uh, we touch each other twice. In France, that number shoots up to about 110 times per hour. Uh, in Puerto Rico, those friends touch each other over 180 times per hour. So what we've seen is that, is that touch deprivation, sensory deprivation, sets us up for a different level of anxiety that we seek to meet uh, through <clears throat> uh, connections via social media to get those things really quickly. So when you take, when you take uh, parental isolation, achievement pressure, and touch deprivation, and you combine those things with, with, with applications designed to think that you can meet those needs through those platforms, you get the sorts of cycles and, and, and habit-forming activities that allow uh, advertisers to make tons of money off of us. Right? They actually don't want us to solve all of these, these problems that we, that we have. So w one of my interests is to help Christians believe that they are actually sufficiently given everything they need to be what God has called them to be and to do. And for Christians to be the kinds of people who are not isolated from each other, who don't suffer from touch separation, who are freed up from performance pressure, because we are actually the people who are being cared for by God. And so the very first verse of, of Psalm 23 that many of you had to memorize when you were little, the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that when we are able to actually truly embrace the reality that the Lord is our shepherd and that we don't need anything else, that we are fully and sufficiently provided for because the sovereign triune God loves us and cares about us, we are, we are free to believe that we are fully enough. That my body's fine, my social life is fine, and that the images that I see when I do this don't make me feel inadequate because I'm already adequate. I'm already adequate. That in Christ, you are already adequate today. In fact, you can't be more adequate than you already are. That you have, you have the full benefits of what it means to be a child of God because of Easter that we just celebrated. So there is nothing that you lack that you need to feel that your life is inadequate, that you suck, that you're a loser, that, that you can't do it 
because the triune God cares about you and that the second person of the Trinity was resurrected for our good. And that we've been given the Holy Spirit to comfort us and care for us and guide us as we, as we live life to be the kind of people that God intends for us and wants us and has destined us to be. So I, I, I just fundamentally believe that Christian colleges ought to be the place where there is no isolation, there is no performance pressure, there is no feelings of inadequacy because of the ways in which we are heavily involved in loving and caring for each other. And that the non-Christian colleges ought to be jealous of us because of the kind of communities that we have on our campuses that's made known by how absolutely chilled and relaxed and less anxious those weird Christians are. How come those Christians in Geneva are so chill and so chillax, right? How come they aren't freaking out about their futures and about career? How come they're so calm? Because they're being cared for by God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for your time. Any, any, any questions, concerns, uh, disagreements, insights? Is that a hand? Okay. Yes. So I've seen a lot of things on social media of um, uh, different places in New York where they have touch therapy sessions yes. show up. Yes. Um, Mostly for adults, for yes. obvious reasons. Yep. Uh, do you think this is a good thing for cultures to um, consider or even uh, advocate for? Um, and uh, you talked about a lot about these uh, studies that have gone for students. Have yes. you seen these studies work similarly for adults? Absolutely. Great, 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 great question. Uh, I can ask, answer the second one first. So I've, I, I'm, I've. My own research is mainly in the student space. That's why I'm referencing that. But of course, these have, have been uh, these studies have also uh, been done in adults. It's interesting that a lot of this data first emerged by uh, in the criminal justice space, uh, trying to figure out why is it that people are deviant and violent, and they've discovered that things like sensory neglect, touch deprivation, childhood trauma, uh, parental neglect, isolation, those are the sorts of, of predictors of future aggression and violence. So a lot of the research has sort of come out of that space. What's been new is recognizing that middle class people suffer from the same things. The, the, the difference is that they, they sort of, uh, the ways in which they medicate those things and, and act out on those things often are hidden and don't have the same uh, outcomes in terms of law enforcement, uh, sort of things. Uh, to, to the first question, it, it's one of the thing, It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I, I think uh, massage therapy has become so popular, and particularly the massage therapies associated in the in the sort of yoga community. So, uh, New York is a city that has massive uh, sensory overload, but also massive sensory deprivation in terms of intimacy. 
and there are entire industries that are have been uh, that are that are doing quite well, uh, just simply touching people. And I I would tell people I, I I wish that I could send people to churches to get hugs, but I can't because a lot of churches don't people don't touch each other, which I think is absolutely bizarre to walk in a church and people aren't all all all. all, all you know, just all over each other. Uh, interesting passage in, in John. I, I'm, mad at, I'm mad at a couple of translations, the ESV and the uh, 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 NIV. Uh, in John 13, 23, when, when Jesus is with the uh, disciples, uh, there's a verse that says um, that, that the, the disciple was at, was at Jesus' side. That's what the ESV and the NIV says. The Greek says that that his head was on his bosom, on the bosom of Jesus. That's King James. That's old school, right? That's OG, right? That, that, that the disciples' head was on the bosom of Christ. So when, when Jesus and his boys, so when Jesus and the disciples were hanging out, they weren't at each other's sides. They were actually physically hanging out all over each other physically. You know, I'm saying that it's sort of intimacy. You don't see that. Imagine walking to church and you see a bunch of men in the corner uh, eating. Uh, you're watching. The, oh, I'll say it this way: They're watching the Super Bowl, okay? Eating wings, and dude's head is on another dude's chest. You're like, "Hey, Dad, can I come over here for a second?" You know, right? 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 So, so, so because because we've sexualized touch, people don't have to pay for it. It's a human need. Right? I mean, most mammals touch each other anywhere from 20, 10 to 20 times a day. Uh, and it's just sort of strange that humans often don't, don't do that uh, with each other, and particularly uh, parents and their own, their own children. I mean, I was, I was raised in a, a home where there was basically no touch. Right? So I'm a, I'm a, when I, why do I care about this? Because I've been to therapy. Um, I'm, I'm a touch deprivation sufferer myself. So... My, my mom and dad uh, didn't touch me at all unless I was getting a whooping for something, okay? So I, I really crave it, um, and, and I'm, I'm not the only person. So I, I think it's good in terms of meeting need, but I think it's insufficient outside of the context of relationship. I just wish churches were the, were the sorts of places that people could go and receive sort of emotional connection as opposed to, to paying for it. Great, great question. This is a this is a this is a pretty pretty big pretty big deal. I mean, I, I've seen studies where they've compared American teens and teens in France at McDonald's. You can see it. You can see it. How the French teens really are super affectionate, and the American teens barely touch each other. Right? But the American teens will hook up like the next, like later. Right? They're like, oh, we won't touch. Yeah. You know? uh, it's just it's just weird. Sort of sort of. Uh, Bifurcation. Yes, ma'am. All of the pressures that you mentioned that young people feel from the church, especially. Yes. If there's any um, links or correlations that you know about between that and why so many young people are leaving the church today. That's a that's a great question. So I, it has a lot to do with the perfectionism, right? So my experience in church culture is that 
if you are anywhere between the age of probably 12 and 25, you're expected to be a perfect Christian, to not sin, to not struggle, to not have doubts, to not have insecurities. And so with that expectation, and we're seeing this particularly with guys, because the expectation is so high, there's like, I'm out. I can't, I, I can't, I can't be that, that person. So it's, it's another, it's another um, a catalyst that facilitates that exit. So I had a student that, that I was talking to him about this, and he, he said that in his church, because he was a part of the youth group culture, like none of the adults even knew him. And he said at one time at his church, he and a bunch of teens were, they were sitting at a table, like a potluck, and, and a, a, a couple in their 50s came and sat down and said, oh, these are the teens here. And they got up and left, and they were just like, right? And this is what he said to me. <clears throat> he said, we get the impression that they don't even care about us. They don't love us, that they don't need us, right? And so if you have to be perfect, out. Can't, can't, I can't, can't do that. My experience is that a lot of conservative uh, evangelical churches are not places for sinners and broken people. They're places where you have to fake it as if you're perfect. And why would you want to go to that when you're when you're already trying to fake it on this, right? With your super happy pictures. So you need some space where you can be real and you don't have to fake it anymore. And if church is not the place where you can take all your, you can take your mask off, take your wig off, take all your weaves out, right? Right? You can just take everything fake off and be real where there's no shame. You'll get people there. So what I've seen is that shame has been the greatest catalyst for pushing young people out because church is a shaming place. Not a, not, a, not, a, not, not a place of warmth and imperfection. Great, great question. Brother. Yes. 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 Yes, 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 I can can do that. Yes. Um, so here's what you tend to find. Okay, so we tend to find in the uh, literature. It has, has a lot to do with one of those other studies that I, that I quoted. So if you are, I'll say it this way, if you're Hispanic or Latino, you basically put me on mute because you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. Right, because we touch all we all over each other. Right. Uh, if you are, uh, if you're Asian, low touch culture. If you are African American, it's a high touch culture among women, low touch culture among men. Uh, in the church, in the black church uh, context, high-touch culture among women, low-touch culture among, among men. If you are from a white, sort of working-class culture, no touch. Just don't do that, right? Like, real men don't touch other men, unless you're drunk, 
and then it, all bets are off uh, 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 that way. So just, um, just anecdotally, what we've seen, one, I had a, a teacher who, who said this to me, and he notices with kids, I quoted a, a study with, with kids, <clears throat> he, he noticed that after school, when the kids come out, he watches and he notices that, that the, um, the parents who have the most affection when their children greet them, which are primarily the Hispanic and, and Latino kids, they are the most well-behaved. The students who have the least physical contact with their parents, where their parents are like, hey, get in the car. Uh, those are the ones that have, that have some of the uh, most uh, behavior problems, right? So here, here's one of the things that we see with, with white males in particular. Uh, there is a, a time period where that sort of physical closeness is okay, usually between uh, 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 sort of early, early, early adolescence through sort of the upper 20s. And then it just, it just ends, right? So you'll see a lot of college guys, high school guys will be all over each other, but then as soon as they hit 23, 25, cuts off. So what you find is a lot of, a lot of white males who were sort of 30 and up uh, don't have a lot of friends. And they certainly don't have a lot of guys that they touch unless they are doing something in sports. So one, one, one of the reasons that we see a lot of uh, a sports involvement for males is that's an opportunity for them to actually touch each other and not be considered gay, right? So within the context of sports, athletes can hug each other, they can kiss each other, they can grab each other's butt, they can cry on each other, they can cry in public, right? They can hold hands. I, have you seen the number of high school teams and college teams like Northwestern? They come out on the field like this, right? Imagine two dudes coming out of class like that, right? Or three big guys walking down on campus like, yo, what's up? Right? So, so the most, even in, even in, in, in the States, um, the, it, it's usually within the context of um, uh, Caribbean, Latin American cultures that have the most touch. Uh, those cultures that that, tend, that tended to have connections with Western Europe uh, tend to touch a lot, a lot less uh, that way. So if you ever have a, like if you move to Miami and get a bunch of Cuban friends, I'm just warning you right now, they're going to be touching you a lot. So just got to get used to it uh, down there. Okay, great, great question. Probably hand over. Yes, sir. Yes. You mentioned perfectionism, success, uh, putting on a front. Yes. Uh, what does the sin of, how does the sin of pride feed into uh, those actions yes. and the whole success culture? Yes. That is a great question for me. I could talk about this for another three minutes, but I won't. I know you're just like, please, Luke. Right, yeah. Um, so this is, this is how pride works. This is, this is how we have misunderstood pride. 
a guy by the name of Terry Cooper has helped me with this. He's a, he's a, a psychologist. He's, and he uses a lot of the work of uh, Dr. Karen Horney uh, on the idealized self, which is, which is great stuff. So this is how we misunderstand pride. We think pride only as self-aggrandizement, thinking we're awesome. But pride has another side, which is self-contempt. And we are suffering more from a culture of self-contempt that's confused with self-aggrandizement. We think people are being narcissistic, but it's actually self-hatred. Here's how this works. We have in our imaginations this person that we think we're supposed to be, that we ought to be, in order to receive love and affection from, from other people. And the extent to which we are not that person, we think we suck, that we are a loser, and it's, it's our own pride that thinks we, we should be this sort of amazing, idealized person in, in the first place. And so as we, think about, as we think about the way pride works, it actually feeds the perfectionism, right? Because we, we believe that we should be this person with this really awesome, awesome life, and we, when we tend to deal with it in one of two ways. We either become narcissists, uh, seeking to live that out, or we become sort of uh, arrested by self-contempt because we actually cannot, we cannot achieve that. And in the Western context, uh, we've, and this has a lot to do with, of course, uh, Augustine's influence, uh, we, tend to, we tend to think of pride as, as that, is, is simply that, that one dimension, but there's that other part uh, that we, we don't pay enough attention to as well. Most of, most of my students are on the self-contempt uh, side of pride as opposed to like, I'm awesome, uh, uh, sort, sort of side of that. Great, great question. Yes, sir. You talked about um, the problem of perfection, uh, perfectionism yes. um, that the church is facing. How do you think that we can recalibrate that perfectionism to sanctification and yes. daily holy living, uh, following Christ and becoming more like him? How can absolutely. we shift that focus? Absolutely, absolutely. The, the um, a, a theological difference would be... Um, in, in, ter in terms of sanctification, uh, we, we don't we don't want to conflate uh, perfectionism with holiness and righteousness. Right. Uh, there is an aspect of sanctification where we where we increasingly recognize our own imperfection and open ourselves up to the reality of that, asking the Lord to change us to be more like He intends us to be as His people. So it's because of our, uh, it, it's, it's because of the, the humility that, 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 that facilitates being open to our imperfections and recognizing that, that what, what is provided in the gospel, by definition, addresses those imperfections, frees us up to simply be the people that God asks us to be, which, by the way, is far less demanding than what the culture wants us to be. Far less demanding. So you don't have to have the perfect job, 
and the perfect right career, the perfect wife, the perfect kids. We don't have to. We don't have to have all those perfect things. We have to have good things, virtuous things, right? recognizing the, the reality of our own imperfection. And so, and so, as we pursue holiness and sanctification, we do that in light of our imperfection, recognizing that we're being made perfect, sort of in the process of, of, of that. And when we fail, we don't believe that we have some that we, we, we somehow are now disqualified from God's love and attention and affirmation. We, we're, not, we're not disqualified from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper because we have failed. So, so perfectionism, when you fail, turns you into a loser. Within the context of the gospel, when you fail, it drives you back to the perfection that, that was offered for you by Christ on your behalf and the commitment that God has to, to see that, that, that your imperfection to work perfection is completed over time, right? So, you know, when, when we sin, I mean, I've sinned like, I don't know, twice this week. Three times, okay. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think, oh, I'm a failure. I'm just going to give up. I'm done. Perfectionism says you, you failed, you're done. You're pathetic. You're, you're, you're useless. You're worthless. You should go jump off a bridge and just kill yourself. Right? That's, that's the big difference, uh, I, would, I, would, I would argue, in terms of thinking about it uh, spiritually and, and theologically. Great, great question. Yes, ma'am. So, obviously, social media is a part of all of our lives. And you did mention that, like, you don't believe that it's evil. Yeah. But you said that we've lost our resilience to it. Yes. Um, how would somebody go about building your resilience back up? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a great question, right? Yeah. So, it, it, has, it has a lot to do with, with uh, you know, the, the virtue of temperance. You got to do virtues here? I don't know. Am I, am I talking about? Okay. Um, yeah, and so you know, you, you have to you you have to have a. Well, I'll, I'll say it this way: in in order in order for you to not let social media platforms like take over your life, uh, you have to have a strong sense of self. And and as a daughter of of a king, of who you are and what you're about, and and be and and to know your your strengths and your weaknesses and to be okay with that. So that when you see someone who has something you don't have, you can actually celebrate that as opposed to thinking you're inadequate. But that requires a strong sense of self. You also need to be willing to, to limit your engagement in terms of time and energy to those platforms as well. Uh, so I have, I've had a student at King's. He told me he just recently just sort of quit Snapchat for a while. He may go back to it. Because he, he realized that he was living his life for the purpose of creating stories. So, so, he would, so, so the decisions that he was making about his day, like, oh, that'd be good. That'd be good to post. Oh, that'd be good to post. Let me do this so I can post it. Let me do that so I can post it. Let me do this so I can post it. So let me do this so I can post it. Was, was making decisions about who he hung out with, what he did for lunch, what he wore, when he studied. He was like, this is crazy. 
So it's something that we control instead of it controlling us. So the, the extent to which that you're able to manage your control of those platforms from a strong sense of self and being willing to just like walk away from it if, if you need to at times, uh, helps you build some of that resilience, some of those resilience muscles so that it doesn't, that doesn't consume you and, and speak lies to you about who you are. That's actually what the advertisers want. Right? They actually want you, they actually want those platforms <clears throat> to speak lies so you'll keep, so you'll stay on them so they can pop an ad up. Right? And I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, if, if you want to know what your life's like, if you really want to know what you're really, what you're really about, just pay attention to the ads that pop up on Instagram. They expose you, right? And sometimes it pops up like, ooh, like, uh, I guess I really am in the shoes, you know, like keep getting shoe ads uh, a lot, right? Uh, and so, and so the, 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 the extent to which you're able from a strong sense of self to say, you know, this is, this is really great for them. I don't have that and I don't care. I have this, right? My life is fine. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually okay. Uh, you're able to sort of build that, that level of resistance. But feel free to just, like, unplug every now and then. And this is why the fear of missing out is so bad. If I unplug, will I lose my social status? Right? If, I'm, if I unplug, will I get invited to parties? Will I get invited to movies? Will I get invited to things? Will I be on campus because I unplugged and watch people, like, going off to do something? I'm like, hey, where are you going? They're like, oh, we're going out, like... Oh, well, we sent you, we, we snapped, you didn't. You're just afraid I'm going to lose my standing if I disconnect. I'd be willing to take a, take a risk on that. So those are just some, some of the things off the top of my head. Great question. Yes, ma'am. Um, um, that sense of self, that strong yes. sense of self that um, seems logical to be the answer or um, to at least... Um, stem the tide um, is not something that you or we probably typically observe in college-age students sure. and in plenty of uh, people older. Sure. Um, do you have ideas for how a Christian college could uh, uh, approach new models or introduce new models that might uh, uh, big question, sorry, yeah, but <laughs> Um, or maybe just one thing um, that we could do differently, and it goes all the way back to the beginning of your talk about uh, how Christian college campuses, the students should be more chill. Yeah, so uh, I, you know, uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> This has a lot to do with how we talk to our own students about what matters in life. And I am far more concerned with my students' mental health than anything now. So for me, a, a successful graduate of King's College, someone who graduates like mentally healthy. Because I'm far less worried about someone who's mentally healthy than I am someone who's got like a great job and is a disaster. Right? 
So, so what, what would happen, what would happen if we shifted, if we did like one click over in terms of the narrative and we talked to students and actually invested more institutional resources uh, in their, in, in the development of, of the self, the strong sense of self, rather than simply focusing on getting them placed in jobs. That's crazy because a lot of your metrics in terms of how you recruit, you know, incoming students from their parents, they want those kind of numbers. Our graduates, 89% of our graduates get jobs on day one out of, you know, right? What if the metric was this? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is like, this is crass, okay? 100% of our students don't have to go to counseling. <laughs> 10 years outside of, you know, like stuff like that, right? Uh, but but what, if, what, if, what, if we actually, what if we actually position students to be a much more emotionally, psychologically, spiritually healthy and actually did something crazy? This is insane. Trusted God that he would provide everything else for them. That, that's insane, right? That we would, we would do what we would need to do to form them spiritually form them in terms of their, their Christian mind and then send them out and trust that God is going to make it all work. As opposed to, and this is one of the reasons why I hate the U.S. News and World Report rankings, it, it forces you to care about stuff that, that ultimately doesn't, doesn't matter uh, in terms of student development, things, things, things like that. So, you know, we, we put, uh, I kind of push back on our ambitious statement at King's because we're trying to, you know, raise students to transform strategic institutions, et cetera, et cetera. I'm saying, I, you know, I, I want students to transform themselves. Let's just start there, right? How about engaging yourself? You can do culture later. And, and, and sort of in the classroom, outside the classroom, in terms of student life, to, to really kind of shift it just a little bit in terms of, of doing that. Because I, I honestly think, and you see this in the city, uh, one of the things that, that sets, I mean, I'll say it this way. So a, a lot of our students get jobs really easily and quickly in New York City because there's a reputation that our students are just sort of solid people, right? And so, the, and so they're not going to be at work self-medicating. And we can, I think one of our distinctives as is, is Christian College is that we can produce students that have the emotional and psychological resilience to handle the marketplace because they're not narcissistic, right? They're not hedonists. Right? They're actually pursuing vocation for the right reason. They are comfortable with uncertainty because they, they trust God, and things like that, right? And sort of equip them with those sorts of things so that they will easily transition uh, into into the marketplace. But I, I would really, ch if, I, if I had a room full of college presidents in here, I would really challenge, Chris College presidents, CCCCUUCUCU presidents uh, in here. I, I really challenge to, to, to think about uh, uh, whether or not could, uh, job placement, the, the alumni profile that you post on the website for both fundraising and recruiting, you communicate what, what really matters by the stuff you post on your, on your site to recruit students and raise money. So you can't, listen, don't, don't, 
right? Don't say you're all about like the transformation of yada, but the only people you brag about are the students who are like doing well at Goldman Sachs or whatever. Like, they're really extraordinary students digging wells in Africa. Those are the real students. So, anyway, great, great question. There's a hand, brother, back there. So you mentioned about how touching is like over-sexualized and yes. things like that. So I was yeah. kind of wondering, how would someone start touching and where it transitions from sexualized to sure. being the norm and okay? Sure. Like how would you, how would that come out? I right. guess in primarily white community because you said Hispanic, they're okay. Yeah, sure, sure. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Great, 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 great question. Uh, so in the, in the psych world, psychology world, um, the, it's, it's a part of communication. So what you do is you ask, you ask permission, right? Because you don't know people's backgrounds, people have been abused and, and things like that. So you simply, hey, hey, is, is it okay if I put my arm around your, your neck or something like that, right? Uh, and once you get permission with your friends to do those things, you don't have to keep asking because you now have uh, new, new boundaries. So you want to communicate boundaries and ask permission to, to do those sorts of things if it doesn't uh, come, come, come natural. Uh, but you know, there, there's, there's also times where um, it's, it's okay to, to sort of to sort of reach out and, and, and stretch people uh, uh, in, in, in different ways. But asking permission is, is one of the safest ways to sort of continue to build that up, uh, to, to sort of facilitate a, a, a new normal if it's something that's foreign or people are, are, are uncomfortable with. And that's something that in the therapy community they would do, right, with a client. They would ask, ask permission first uh, before they did anything, anything like, like that. I would, I would really encourage, at least um, uh, in contexts like this, right, to sort of, you know, um, think about the proximity with which you sit when you watch movies, when you're sitting in class, when you're just hanging out. And and uh, see you know see see where that takes you. But, but asking asking permission is, is always good. Dr. Bradley, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate my uh, pleasure. You giving us plenty to think about and talk about. Please join me in thanking Dr. Bradley. Thank you. For being here Thank you.